Welcome to the Candor Communication Podcast, where we discuss interpersonal communication and all the human stuff that gets in the way. Join us as we learn to get our message across with more courage, clarity, and connection. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Devon. Conversations in healthcare can be very difficult. And when I say that, you might immediately think of doctors giving bad news to patients or to their loved ones. But imagine having to talk to the family of someone who has just passed away, and you need to ask them if they would like to donate their loved one's organs. It's conversations like this that Dr. Ashley Fico studies. Dr. Ashley Fico is an assistant professor in the Department of Public Health and Health Education at the State University of New York at Brockport. Her research focuses on the role of interpersonal communication in health contexts, such as examining how requesters communicate with families about the option of organ donation at the end of life. Ashley is also CEO and co-founder of InnoQuest LLC. The InnoQuest app, launching later this year, transforms the act of touring a city into an escape room-like experience. We hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Dr. Ashley Fico. Hey, Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on, and I'm really keen to speak to someone who's got experience in interpersonal communication in a very practical kind of setting, but I want to understand what drew you into this field? Like what drew you to interpersonal communication? Yeah, you know, I think what really appealed to me was the fact that it was so broad, right? I mean, I remember when I first started graduate school, a professor saying to me something to the extent of, when people ask why I study communication, it's because I can study anything, right? Because it's hard to kind of escape that power that communication has in our lives. And so for me, interpersonal communication was particularly fascinating because we're all doing it all the time. And then to go further and really look at the health applications of it, to me, that was just the most fascinating part because it was really, you could start to look at kind of how did communication have these really life or death outcomes for people, which was really mind-blowing to think about. And I can very much relate to that. It's part of why I think for this podcast, we chose to study communication because again, it was so broad and I was like, I can really follow my curiosity here (laughs) and talk about whatever I want. (laughs) But in terms of the health focus, what does that look like in like how you study it? Like what, how does it relate to health? Yeah, so it can look really different for different people. So it could be everything from, for example, looking at the effectiveness of health campaigns in the media to maybe looking at how different health topics are portrayed in entertainment programming and whether that's done so accurately or in a way that persuades viewers to take some sort of action. For myself, what I've done is really looked at it in the interpersonal context. And so in particular, I focus on uh, interpersonal communication in the context of organ donation. So essentially looking at scenarios uh, at the end of life where 
organ procurement coordinators or requesters go into hospitals and they're tasked with talking with a family about the potential of donating their loved one's organs. So you can imagine it's just these really incredibly emotional, high stakes situations where communication matters. It matters to that family who's going through that really awful time in their lives. And it matters to those people who are waiting for an organ on the other side of the list. I can imagine it'd be a very difficult conversation to go into, right? Because I guess as the requester, like, well, you need an outcome. You, you, you're looking for organs, right? That are going to save lives, but you need to be sensitive to the family as well. So you both do research and teach on that topic, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe let's start with the teaching side of it. For students that you are teaching, what are some of the the things you hope they take away from the classes that you are teaching? Yeah, so one of the biggest things that I hope they take away is just that our communication really needs to be audience-centered. I mean, I really look at it as if we don't understand who our audience is, how are we ever going to be an effective communicator? Because then I'm speaking for me instead of for whoever is listening to me. And so there's a disconnect there, right? Um, So for students, what I really do is kind of build the whole class around the audience. I start with, you know, how do we learn about a group of people that we're working with? What are their beliefs? What's their knowledge? What's their attitudes? Then let's take a step back and take a look at, okay, where do they get their information? You know, do they consume one particular channel over another? And then Finally, after we've done all of that work, let's take a look and layer in theory and what we know about behavior change and then our knowledge of communication and how to really produce an effective message. So it's almost, I think, in some ways backwards. Like I think a lot of people, when they think about communication, the they immediately kind of feel like, oh, it's like public speaking. You're just delivering a message. But it really, I think, starts on the other side of that equation. Yeah, when you talk about the audience perspective, I I tend to think about public speaking myself. However, your audience is a very tricky audience in the context of being in a hospital and and talking to that type of audience. And I imagine within the audience, you could have a diverse mix of opinions too, when you've got uh, brothers, sisters, children, friends who can have very strong and perhaps very differing opinions. <laughs> yeah. So just to be clear, I don't uh, do the request myself. I'm not usually in the hospital. I'm usually working with the people who actually go out and do that. But nonetheless, I mean, having worked with a good 200 of them, they've provided a good summary of what they do in those settings. If you're thinking about interpersonal relationships, right, everyone's opinion is going to be likely to be important in a family. And you're absolutely right that you can get those instances where there's disagreement between mom and dad and brother and sister. That said, there is also, at least within the U.S. system, kind of a legal hierarchy to it. And so there's generally someone who is next of kin and who really does have the legal authority to make that decision. One thing that that I've heard you say is you are not your audience. And I think that is something that, I mean, I myself can often fall into the trap of where you just assume that, okay, I would feel sad in the situation. So therefore the person I'm talking to is going to feel sad. 
I mean, is that always the case? No. Um, so first, I'm so glad you said that because I, I was telling you earlier, I always tell my students, if you leave this class with one thing, I want to run into you in the grocery store and I want you to say, you are not your audience. <laughs> <laughs> so you passed. <laughs> um, so the... You're absolutely right, though, that in a setting like organ donation, it really does come into play. Because I think for many of us, I think we initially think the loss of a loved one, I'd be so sad. And really, there's a lot of emotions at play. So sometimes it can be something like a family is really angry. Um, very often, these deaths tend to be sudden, they're traumatic, they're really unexpected. And so it can be anger in terms of this wasn't supposed to happen. We had, you know, a life of plans ahead of us. And now here I am making this decision. It can be anger in terms of sometimes there are situations where the person who is legally responsible for making decisions has been estranged from the person who has passed away. And so then you have a really complicated situation where it's, you know, I, I'm angry because we haven't spoken in three years and I don't want to take this on and have this responsibility. Um, sometimes it's anger over everything that's happened throughout the course of that person's hospitalization. You know, so it really can range. I mean, you'll also run into families who the way they cope is, you know, requesters will talk about they go in a room and families are kind of you know, laughing a little and telling stories. And, you know, that's the way that they handle that situation. And so I think a big thing is to just keep in mind that their experience is their own. It's not yours. And to kind of not bring anything with you into that room. No, thank you. I think this is a, a big point. You are not your audience. But I just want to get a point of clarification for myself. The conversations in the hospital, are they with people who have passed away, who've already expressed that they want to donate an organ, or is it with everybody? Good question. Um, so essentially what happens is in the U.S. system, I believe Australia works the same way as well, but in the U.S. system, while a person is living, they're able to register their consent to be a donor. And so in our system, that's legally binding. So if, for example, I were to register as a donor, which I am while I'm alive, and I passed away, a requester would go to my husband but it wouldn't be to seek his permission. It would simply be to walk him through the process. On the other hand, though, you can have, and this is actually a pretty common scenario, someone passes away and their wishes are unknown. And so then the question really becomes, okay, we have to approach the next of kin and it's up to them to decide what this person would have wanted. And part of that understanding your audience piece you mentioned as well also depends on what they perceive as how things work and what impacts how they see how the hospital system works or the, the donor system works, that kind of thing. And, you know, shows like Grey's Anatomy, for example, could have a huge impact on people's perception. Are those perceptions helpful? Do they hinder? What is your experience with people who consume like shows like that? Yeah. So there's 
this really interesting theory in communication called narrative transportation theory. And it basically says that as people become kind of caught up with a character, so they identify more with a character, they're more transported by the story, they're more likely to be persuaded kind of in the manner that that character takes. So the unfortunate side effect of that is that shows like Grey's Anatomy tend to portray these kind of really outrageous myths of donation that make for, you know, entertaining high stakes TV, but do not represent how the donation system works. So you'll have these episodes where it's, you know, oh, there's a doctor on floor two, and there's a heart on floor three, and they're going to get it and bring it to floor two. And, you know, it never works like that. Like the system is all, it's all separate systems. So actually doctors don't even do the requesting when it comes to donation. It's professionals from an organ procurement organization who are specially trained in the process. And so it's really, I think, unfortunate that there are shows that portray the issue this way because people don't realize You know, on one hand, you know, right, okay, it's a fictional show. But on the other, I think when it's a topic that the general public is a little bit unfamiliar with, I think it's pretty easy to fall into the trap of, oh my gosh, that must must be the way it works, you know. There's a really cool organization, Hollywood Health and Society, and they actually will work with screenplay writers to try to make their scripts more accurate. So they're really trying to look at lots of different health issues in terms of how they're portrayed in the media to kind of help address some of these consequences that we've been seeing. So, I mean, for example, that that, that would mean then that someone who watches a show and they kind of hear that, see the story where, okay, they're deciding to kill or let one person die to get the organ to someone else, they're kind of thinking, well, I don't want to be a donor because I don't want to be at risk of someone pulling the, the plug on me just to save someone else's life. Is that kind of what drives the decisions then? Is that what comes through? I mean, there that is definitely a common myth that they'll hear in the field. I mean, I do a lot of work with my own students where we'll do just on-campus campaigns where they um, talk to their peers about registering as a donor. And that's something that comes up frequently. Without a doubt, every semester, I'll have a couple students who will say, well, I watch TV show X and I don't want to do it because. And so then we'll spend a lot of time breaking down hold on, that's not how this system is set up. Like there are a lot of checks and balances in place. And, you know, it is nothing like what you see on TV. It's good for entertainment, but not for education. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I feel like I've never set, set foot in a courtroom, but I feel like I know what's going on <laughs> from all the shows I've watched. So it's very easy to be fooled to think you know what's going on and really have zero idea. <laughs> but I want to come back to that um, uh, persuading people to give, you know, the loved ones to then donate organs. So for a person who hasn't registered and, you know, having that conversation, what are the best ways to really approach the topic? Because, I mean, I would think for myself, and again, this is me saying I'm my own audience here, but <laughs> I, would, I might kind of have the thing where like, I'm just, I'm under stress, I've just lost someone, and now you're asking me something, and like, I was just like, no, you know, I, I don't have time for this right now, you just, just go away. Mm-hmm. You know, is that kind of, how, how do you avoid that kind of response when you're the requester? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes you don't. I mean, sometimes that is the way that people are going to respond to you. I think something that's pretty common across the field is that they really just want families to have all of the information they need to make a good decision. And I think the fact that it's such an emotional time makes that really difficult because initially, like you said, it would be so easy for a family to say, I just can't think about anything else right now, you know, but we also know kind of historically the whole reason that organ procurement organizations even came up is kind of earlier in like years past doctors were responsible for talking to families and they would kind of make assumptions about families and they'd say, Oh, well that family is angry. They don't want to donate. And so they wouldn't ask them. And then you'd end up with families who would say, hold on, but if somebody had talked to me, I actually would have donated. And it ends up being upsetting to them because for a lot of families, they find it to be not, I think necessarily in the moment that day, but over the long term, I think can find it to be, a really healing, powerful thing that they did, you know, that they were able to save someone else's life out of this terrible circumstance. So kind of the whole organ procurement organization system really came about to make sure that if a person was medically eligible, they were being presented with that opportunity. So I think, you know, sometimes a lot of it, I think, is is reading your audience. I think it's going in and having a conversation. Sometimes they do reapproach. Um, so meaning like if a family says no, sometimes they'll go back. I think it depends on why they're doing that as to whether or not that's effective. I think if it's an informed no, that's one thing. I think if it's a no where it's just we don't want to listen to you, period. There might be a reason to spend some time and let a family have some space and then, you know, perhaps address it again in a different way. I know timing is critical to all of this work. There's so much to be said about what the family has to understand before they can even really address the topic of organ donation. Yeah, I think that's a a really big point for me that reading the reading the family or reading the body language of another person in, in general I, I like to think that I can sense if someone if I can approach someone or not approach someone whether I was in a hospital or whether I was just on the street some people will look very angry some people look unapproachable some people I feel like I can just sense you don't want anyone to come near you and others uh, you know, if you think, oh, this person would love to have a chat or love to engage in a conversation. And I'm taking two, I guess, polar extremes um, to make the point. I imagine as part of your teaching and training, a big part of that training is to know how or when to approach, when not to approach, when to back off. I picked, you know, we were talking about dogs earlier. I picture it like a, like a dog, you know, if, if, you're, if you go to a gate and you've got a dog that's barking and looks very angry and fierce, I'm not going anywhere near that dog, <laughs> but, that, but that cute little puppy, <laughs> I might approach. <laughs> right, right. You're exactly right. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of um, a lot of what we talk about um, or a lot of what our own research has shown as being effective is kind of early intervention on the hospital. 
or at the hospital rather. And so really part of what that means is getting there early just to observe. So like you said, you know, you're watching these nonverbals. Very often organ procurement organizations will send someone on site early on and it's really so they can kind of get a feel of the situation. So, you know, not just observe kind of from a distance the family and what's going on, but also kind of talk to the nurses and doctors about, okay, who's making decisions here? Who do I need to talk to when I feel the time is right? Um, and so I think it it can help prevent some of those more drastic situations from occurring. And when you finally, or when the person finally kind of goes to initiate that conversation, are there requesters that have an approach that seems to work better than others? What kind of approaches do you tend to see? From what our research has shown, I tend to think of the most successful requesters as being those who are passionate, but also informative, and I think above all else, supportive. So I think they really go in keeping that family's needs in mind. So they are trying to support the family throughout the process. In some way, they're trying to build a rapport with that family. And then ultimately, when the topic of donation comes up, I think they've really built that foundation where they can have a more effective conversation about it. So it usually involves, you know, for many before organ donation is even a discussion, there's often a discussion of typically this results from brain death. Does the family even understand brain death? Because if they don't understand that their loved one has died, there's no way that they're going to be able to have a conversation about donation because they're still focused on what they think is happening with their loved one. I think checking that, like seeing how people understand things, I think is important. But it can be a bit of a challenge as well. I know, for example, for myself, sometimes I'll, I'll be asking someone to do something, right? And I think I've been very clear. I know, like, I, I, you know, I've expressed myself very simply, very clearly in my mind. I think, okay, this person should get it. But I want to see if the person did get it. How do I do that without being condescending? It's like, hey, can you repeat back to me what you've understood that I've said? Like, how, <laughs> what is the, the way that... <laughs> to do that without being condescending because I find that particularly challenging. Yeah, that it, I mean, it can be difficult depending on the circumstances, right? I mean, I even think with teaching, you walk that line, you know, because I want to make sure the class is with me, but I also don't want it to come across as you know, okay, I have my head around this information. Do you? Like, that's terrible. Nobody wants to feel that way. So I think the biggest thing is just perception checking. But I think there are ways that you can frame that that are probably a bit more effective. So usually, I would say focus on behaviors that you're seeing, as opposed to asking if someone has understood something. So like in the classroom, I very often will say something like, mm, I'm seeing some faces that are making me think maybe I wasn't clear there. And then usually that opens up the door for them to say, yeah, you're right. I, I don't know what that was. And then I know we can backtrack. <laughs> 
I imagine that's that's part of what you want them to do. You actually want them to approach you. You want those people who are actually not sure, not to be afraid of you because they feel like they're asking a silly question. So I imagine part of the skill is making them feel comfortable that it is okay not to know. And, and your phrase is just playing on my mind. You are not your audience. Uh, and because we are not our audience, why should they perhaps understand understand it the way we expect them to well, I think that's a quite a powerful phrase you've got thank you thank you yeah you know I really love that you kind of continued down that path I just posted about this on LinkedIn the other day about actually how important I think it is to share embarrassing moments with your students <laughs> so like every class <laughs> I make sure I have something ridiculous to tell them. Like I, I shared the story on LinkedIn the other day. I was teaching a, um, a class in biostatistics and I also teach a course in health research. And so there's a little bit of overlap in terms of topics. And so this one day I'm going along, I'm teaching and kind of in my zone. And I said, okay, so now we're going to talk about variants. You guys all remember that from biostatistics, right? And so, you know, there's, puzzled faces and everybody's looking at each other. All of a sudden, this one guy in the back puts up his hand. Dr. Fico, aren't we in biostatistics right now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> but like, I mean, silly, right? Like, that's what lack of sleep will do to a person. <laughs> but like, in some ways, I just love it because it's like it lightens the whole mood. Everybody laughs. And now all of a sudden, like, if I'm covering standard deviation for the fourth time and that guy in the back doesn't get it, I think he's going to feel a lot safer to say she's not going to care. She's the one who last week thought she was, you know, teaching health research. And here we were in biostatistics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's a great story. But I think sometimes it also, body language can be deceptive as well. Or not so much the body language, but people think they get it when what they hear is different to what you've said, right? And they think they've heard what you've said and you think they've heard what you've said, but there's a mismatch. And I mean, an example that I think of is there was this person I was teaching something to at work and he was very confident. He's like, yep, I got this, I got this. And then he comes back, you know, later and is like, okay, this is what I've done. I'm like, you didn't hear anything I've said. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got all the same questions. So clearly something, something didn't compute here. So, and, and, you know, it's not that I could, you know, from his body language, I could see that, well, he thinks he's getting it. But yeah, mm -hmm. how, how do you kind of go deeper than just the body language to, to do that perception checking? Yeah, that's, I mean, that can be really hard, right? Because I think sometimes too, then you're in a situation and certainly I run into this as a professor where it's like, you're an authority figure. And so they feel like they should be saying like, yes, I get it, you know, and all their body language is signaling, yep, they're right here. And then you see them perform and you think, oh, they weren't there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, for me, I think one of the things I found useful 
is kind of opportunities to apply those skills kind of in the interim. So I try to mix a lot of things in class where, you know, if I introduce a concept, then I'll throw out a question and say something to the extent of, well, okay, if we wanted to apply concept X in this area, then what would we think we would do? And so that I think gets them I think those who really understand it can apply it and can be successful with that. And if you get a lot of answers that are kind of all over the map, then you know maybe it's time to backtrack a little bit. Mm, So kind of asking questions that are more hypothetical that kind of test the what what you've just, if they understood what you've said, without kind of saying, hey, what did I just say? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, But I think it's also... The, the way that you, I guess, try to bring your point across can make a difference. And I mean, going back to like the organ donation, I mean, sometimes people can hear it, but I mean, they don't, don't get it. Are there other ways people can then try to get the same message across? Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually a big thing that comes up kind of preemptive to organ donation when a requester goes in and has to talk about um, brain death. So typically donation results from brain death person is dead, but they are on a respirator. And so that's really hard for families to understand because if they look at that person in the bed, they're warm to the touch, they see their chest going up and down. And so they feel like this person must be coming out of it. They're still here. And that's not the case, but that's really hard because it looks different than it is. So doctors always inform them of that. There's always extensive tests that are done. But very often when requesters go in from the organ procurement organization, they'll start out by saying something to the extent of, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with your loved one? Because really what they're trying to assess is, does the family even grasp that the person has died? If that person starts saying something that leads them to think that, you know, they're not understanding this situation, then that's something where really visual communication can come in. So very often what they'll do is they'll talk to the doctors and they'll get a hold of different brain scans so they can show the family, like, this is what a brain would look like if it were functioning, this is what your loved one's brain looks like. And then sometimes that can be helpful. So they have a little bit more kind of hard evidence in front of them, for lack of a better word, to understand what's happening. And looking at some of the other, I guess, micro skills involved in interpersonal communication. And and I think one that often, in my mind anyway, causes a lot of friction and conflict is really around the assumptions or or value judgments instead of observations. And I would imagine Mm -hmm. that it'd be something that's quite, uh, quite a big issue in organ donation because there might be a perception of judgment when someone says, no, we don't want to donate or, you know, like there could be a feeling of judgment. So how do you, I guess, make sure that you don't trigger emotional reactions unnecessarily by making value judgments instead of observations. How how do the best requesters navigate that? Yeah, it's really hard because I think it comes into play in a couple of different ways. So the first 
place I think it can come into play that challenges, I think, new requesters, especially, is really when they first observe a family. So like we were talking about how there's all of these different emotions. And so that right there, it can be pretty quick for someone to say, they're acting angry, they're yelling at each other, you know, and make an assumption about that, right? Oh, they're a family that doesn't get along, or they're a family that's not going to support this. And so one of the things we talked about in our training was really kind of taking a step back and kind of checking those perceptions at the door. I mean, everyone has biases, we know that, but I think recognizing them is where it can make a difference between a successful and an unsuccessful approach. I think then the rest of that is carried in the follow-up conversations. So very often successful requesters are very clear up front with the family about the fact that they just want them to make an informed decision. And so then I think a family doesn't feel perhaps guilty if they do end up saying no. I think they that when they see the person deliver on, you know, I'm supporting you, I'm still here, I'm sorry for your loss, I think that's more comforting to them. A lot of the conversation is about the, the emotions. And in my experience, emotions tend to trump logic. And so I imagine that the requesters that you're training and I guess their their natural skill, I'm imagining that they've got pretty strong emotional intelligence skills and they're the kind of people doing that job who perhaps naturally are emotionally intelligent and then that skill gets refined and improved with your teaching. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because years ago, I think you saw more people who actually had come from more of a sales background in the field. And then over time, I think you saw more and more people who come from more of a social work background. So I think naturally are, you know, highly emotionally intelligent. Not that someone in sales couldn't be, but just that this is, you know, what those people are probably drawn towards. The other thing you often see is you'll find people who actually have a personal tie to donations. So it's not unusual for someone who perhaps their child was a donor and it brought them so much. I don't, I'm not sure even of the right word to use. I don't want to say joy, but it brought them some, you know, some contentment, some peace. It was this one positive thing that they could hold on to. And that means so much to them that as a result, they find themselves wanting to go into the field. And I think that they often are really successful too, because even though you are not your audience, I think that they do have a unique perspective. They're closer than I think the average person could have been. They know that family is going to respond differently. It's going to be a different set of emotions, but they at least have experienced what that request is like. Yeah. And I would imagine that sharing your own story can probably be a a, a way to show options, I guess, for what this could look like without being directive or judgmental in any way you can just share your story without trying to make a judgment on them to say you should do what i've done because of this this and that 
Right. It really shows that power of story. I mean, is, there, is that something used in, in other ways as well, even if, say, someone doesn't have that same experience? Are there stories that are often told or ways to kind of get families on board or just open to ideas? I think it's something that can come up if this situation arises. So a very common question is families will want to know about can we meet the family? Like, if I donate, am I going to be able to communicate with that family who gets my loved one's organs? And so often there's a lot of room for conversation around that. Kind of the baseline process is all of the communication initially goes through the organ procurement organization. So after the donation happens, the organ procurement organization will send out a letter and it will have really basic information for the recipient about who the donor was. So, you know, maybe a date or an age, you know, not any identifying specifics. Then if someone wants to know more on either side, they have to write to the OPO and then the OPO can reach out to the other party and say, hey, you know, would you like to receive communication? And over time, that can build into these really incredible things. I mean, there's a story in Rochester where I'm from that is just just unbelievable. It's a it was a mother who her child died and she was in the hospital and she was singing to her child the song from the musical, I believe it's the musical Wicked. And she donated the baby's organs. Another baby received them. Over the years, she started corresponding with the mother. And it came about that right before the mother sent her son in to get the transplant, she was over his crib singing the exact same song. And so the two mothers went and sang together at this organ donation event. And it's just, you hear those stories and it's just, it's so powerful. You know, I mean, I don't think that that is told often, but I mean, I think that that's something where, wow, that's the power of this. Yeah, and it, it really, I guess, goes back to that, I guess, shared humanity, right? It's like in in the end, we like <laughs> we've got more in common than than that sets us apart, and I think that just beautifully demonstrates that as well. One one thing I want to, I guess, also look into is the communication that has come out with COVID, which I think I'm kind of loosely basing it because it's a health um, topic, and but it just feels like there's been a lot of, I guess, debate about how the communication could have been done, should have been done. Love to hear your thoughts on <laughs> how it was handled and how it could have maybe been handled differently from your perspective. <laughs> I I think they had a really hard job to do, right? Um, I think they're I think the problem is we were all learning as we went along, right? And so every day you're getting new information. And I think part of the problem is it's kind of this balance, right, between the credibility of an agency and should I just, you know, set forth, here's what we're going to do because I'm an authority figure or kind of the perspective of, should I really tell the general public 
the information I have today is different from the information I had two weeks ago. And as a result, now I'm going to tell you something totally different. Because I think a lot of what happened with COVID was people were confused, right? I mean, I know for us, it was like at first there was this huge push of don't wear a mask. They're only for medical professionals. And then it was, yes, wear a mask all the time. And then it was maybe even two masks. Just kidding. Only one. Um, you know, and so it. I think some people perceive that as nobody knows what's going on. And I think really what it was, was just, hey, we're processing this as we go and we're doing the best we can. But I think that maybe maybe that could have been presented a little bit differently. I don't know. But I think that that was really hard for people because I think I think because the message changed so much, there was something about it that felt like it couldn't be trusted. And I don't think that's the case. I think you've brought up something important for me, this thought that authority, an authority figure should know all the answers and the concept that an authority figure must be right. Um, I'm sure in your experiences as in, in teaching, you're constantly feeling like, do I know all the answers to everything? Should I? Am I expected to? That could put a pressure on you. Yet some of the things that I've enjoyed by listening to some of the leadership during the COVID is the leaders who are honest and saying, I, I don't know everything. This is what I know now. Yeah. I might know new information tomorrow, but the best information I have now is this. I just want to be open and transparent about that. It doesn't mean that I have all the answers. It doesn't mean that I know everything. And that can come across quite well, in my opinion. Can you can you relate to that concept of the authority figure expected to be a know-it-all? <laughs> Absolutely, Right. I think with what you're talking about, there's just this authenticity to it because no one can know everything. I mean, no matter how expert you are in a given field, there's always more to know, you know? I mean, that's what the research process is all about. You know, we uncover one thing and we do more research and the field starts to shift in a different direction and that's okay. I mean, at the time we published, at the time we did our work, that was the best information we had. But I do think there's a lot to be said for being open about that process, you know, that it's not perfect. It's not perfect for research, for teaching, for anybody who's in any kind of position, you know, there's always more to learn. And so I think it comes across more authentic for people if you're just realistic about that. And I think it's a fine line, though, because I think especially when there's a lot of uncertainty, you want your leaders and authority figures to give you a bit of certainty, right? Because you feel like you're just so lost. And I think it can be a fine line because if they, if everyone comes out saying, we don't know, then you, you don't lose, like you don't have trust there either. So it'd be a very fine line to kind of balance, right? It's like not losing trust by going from one extreme to the other, but at the same time, mm -hmm. not undermining your own trust by saying, I don't know anything either. Uh, it's, it's a very hard balance to get right. Right. Agreed. Yeah. I don't think it's an easy thing to do. I think it's a constant, constant, I think, honesty about what you know, and maybe also honesty about what you don't know we know X, here's Y, and here's the next question we're asking that might change that. I also want to talk a bit about InnoQuest. And for people who may have heard that for the first time, what is InnoQuest? 
So my brother and I uh, created a mobile application. We're launching late this summer, early fall. And basically what it does is it transforms the experience of touring a city into something that's more like an escape room. So you buy a ticket to a game, uh, you go out into your physical city, and you're kind of immersed in the story. So you have characters on video who are giving you information and backstory. You have kind of a case file that's full of different information and clues. And then the game will guide you from place to place. And at each place in your city, you'll have to kind of unlock the next puzzle in your story by exploring the real world. So totally different from organ donation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. It's a, <laughs> but how, how did that idea like come about? Like, where did, where did that idea come from? Uh, see, now we're getting into all sides of me tonight. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so my brother and I... We used to have, we would call it Sunday Fun Day, and we would just pick one Sunday every month and just go try something new. So we would go do like an escape room or a sushi rolling class or a ropes course. And so we're always kind of on the lookout for this next big thing. So one of the things we did was a scavenger hunt app. And those were really fun, but they were really more geared toward kind of tasks that you did as opposed to puzzles that you solved. So it was more, um, you know, take a silly picture or, mm. you know, count the number of windows and enter it in and learn a historical fact, something like that. So it was a neat experience. But then we had a really cool experience in New York City. So we did this immersive theater experience. It was so much fun. So it started... The night before, we had bought our tickets for this experience, and I get a call on my cell phone, and it's some number I don't know, and the guy says, hey, hey, I'm calling you about that thing, so you're going to meet me on the corner of such and such and such and such at this time tomorrow. You know what I'm talking about? Great. I'll see you then. (laughs) So I'm thinking... Okay, like, either we're about to go on this really cool experience or get abducted, and I don't know which. (laughs) We go to this corner. We're standing there. This guy comes, like, in a full pinstripe suit, rolling this suitcase down the street of New York, and he's like, guys, you're here for the thing? Follow me. (laughs) And so... He kind of goes around the corner with you and sets up this whole scenario. So, like, I I forget the specifics, but it was something like he was, like, part of the mafia and he was leaving the country and you were tasked with, like, getting another associate out of the country. But then he basically sends you on this, like, journey across New York City where you have to go like into different establishments and kind of get more pieces of this story. So it was so much fun. I mean, it was just hilarious because you had to like go into every place and say like the name of this, this fake mafia person, except that sometimes you would like guess wrong. So, I mean, I would be going up to strangers in New York, like, do you know so-and-so? And they'd be like, no, I don't. And I'd be like really insistent, like, no, but you know him. And like, what is this woman? Like, I'm on lunch trying to have a sandwich. 
But it ended up being amazing. Like it was just this whole immersive experience. And so from that, we started talking about like, how could we merge that with what we'd seen of the scavenger hunts, this idea of like digital delivery of information and exploring the real world, but also how could you impose like some sort of story and more problem solving on top of that. So InnaQuest was kind of the hybrid that came about as a result of those different experiences. Oh, I think that that's a hilarious story. And I, I can <laughs> just imagine like going up to the wrong person and feeling quite embarrassed as well. I mean, maybe this is the introvert in me because I'm like I'm I'm kind of scared to go up to people on just normally, right? And if I, it's the risk that I'm going up to the wrong person and going to look silly in the process, I would feel very hesitant to do that. So I'm kind of curious: Did you feel embarrassed after you know when you kind of realized you made mistakes, or did it kind of help you to get over that type of fear if you had that fear at all? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was uncomfortable because (laughs) it was particularly uncomfortable because the actors weren't always initially forthcoming. So you had to, you really did have to kind of push a little bit. Like initially, they'd often be like, no, I don't know him. And so you wouldn't really know, do they really not know him? Or am I like harassing a poor stranger? (laughs) (laughs) They're probably some of our best experiences. I can see the excitement in your face by, you know, <laughs> just uh, just recalling those things where you did something you wouldn't normally do, and thinking about all those interpersonal skills we we're talking about. I can certainly see it with you. It certainly excites you. Oh yeah, I mean, it definitely does. And I think you, you know, that's another really, I think, important thing behind why we created InnaQuest is just we were always seeking that next new thing, and so. For us, this is like a platform where we can build this limitless amount of stories and of puzzles and of different ways of interacting with a place. So it's like any place can become new again by experiencing it through this app. So, I mean, I think there's that is definitely a huge driver for me. Like I always am looking for, you know, how can I do something new and different here that I haven't done before? And I mean, there's the fun component of the app and enjoying it and kind of giving people an experience. But do you have any hopes or aspirations that the app would impact, say, how people perceive certain places? Because I mean, each of us might have very particular ways we perceive a city or a a neighborhood. You hope that this app changes how people view places and their relationships with those places? Yeah, absolutely. So our first game in Rochester is in this little neighborhood called Neighborhood of the Arts. And so there's a lot of public artwork, a lot of different art museums in the area, sculptures, things like that. And so I've been through this neighborhood tons of times, you know, and I would have said like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of good art there, but I really probably couldn't have told you a whole lot about it. And so when we started planning the puzzles for our first game, we really had to go take a look at that area in detail. I mean, all of a sudden, like you're looking at at every building and at, you know, when were things created and what colors are here and what could we reference and where do we want people looking? So even for me in planning it, it gave me this whole different experience of a city that I'd grown up right near. And so I suspect it'll be that way for a lot of people, because I think for all of us, 
you know, probably especially in the places that we're familiar with, we just don't take the time to look at all the stuff that's around us. I mean, I also think like I'm about an hour and a half from Niagara Falls here and people will come from out of town and that's such a big deal. And I think, wow, like for how long I've lived here, I really don't go there all that often. So it's just this idea of like reminding you to pay attention to what's right in front of you, I guess. Yeah. And so I think it's the rediscovering a place, you know, which I think is really interesting, but also having toured places like as a tourist or going to visit places, you tend to get the superficial uh, on the surface kind of experience. You don't really understand what maybe a local would be perceiving the place as and their experiences and why they believe what they believe or do what they do based on the culture in that area. So, I mean, I would think that that would kind of introduce people as well, just that deeper layer into a place instead of just the superficial, the sites, the things to do based on a Yelp review or a, <laughs> a you know, TripAdvisor type thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the other things I'm really excited about is that whatever story we tell can be unique to an area. So, I mean, it could have something to do with like the history of an area and it could touch on these nonfiction historical elements. It could be a fictional story that maybe relates to like a legend in the area. It could be whatever, but I think it can definitely add this new layer. And so one of the things I'm kind of excited about is thinking about like, how do we tell the best stories that really I think local people would want told within those regions. So I'm really looking forward to kind of looking into that and seeing what we can come up with. And I really like just how it's accessible as well. And in the sense that often when I'm thinking of, okay, what are we going to do this weekend, right? It's, you, you've got your, your standard go-to things that you do and it can become a bit stale and you don't really explore new things, try new things. And I'm just looking at your Sunday fun day idea. Why was that something that was important to you? Like, why, what was the drive to try new things? You know, I'm sure it was mine. I'm sure it wasn't my brother's. He will tell you he was probably dragged along on every Sunday fun day. I think it was probably, you know, I've always liked to travel. I've liked to experience new things. So I'm sure that it was some of that coming out. And I think part of it was coming out too in the sense that, you know, you kind of get into your routine. You get up, you do your research, you go to school. And so it was this thing that we could really look forward to. So it was just a great way to bond. It's also just a really good way to learn something new and laugh at yourself. And I mean, you try all these different things and I mean, you're going to be bad at many of them. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually think that's a very good point because I think often we're so scared to try things we're going to be bad at. We, we can easily think, okay, we're better than we are at everything because we don't try anything new. And so we can get a bit arrogant in our own ability and that basically trying something new almost teaches you a bit of humility as well. You realize, oh, okay, everyone starts at the bottom and <laughs> will suck at something. And you have more, I guess, empathy for people starting out, but also just 
you realize, okay, maybe I don't know everything because maybe there is more to learn. And it really encourages that learner's mindset, perhaps. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I think as well, um, not only learning where my strengths maybe were and weren't, but also always kind of keeping my eyes open for ways that I could apply things that I learned in one area to something else. I'm sure that having gone through escape rooms impacts this product that we've made now, you know, so you're kind of drawing from those. I'm sure that my love of movies made me think about, okay, well, when I'm writing the script for the first story, like what's going to draw me in, what's intriguing to me. So I think unless you expose yourself to those things, you don't really have as wide a base to draw from when you go to create something new. Yeah, and I think it really gets you out of your bubble as well. You can live in an echo chamber sometimes and just hear the same thought patterns repeated and repeated. And I think it's good to see that, oh, there's a bigger world out there and not everyone thinks the way I think. (laughs) Right, exactly. If people wanted to reach out to you or know more about what you're doing or know more about InnoQuest, how could they get in touch with you? Uh, Yes, they can definitely find me on LinkedIn, Ashley Fico, or check out our website, InnoQuest.com. But I would love to hear from anybody. So I welcome it. Thank you, Ashley. Really appreciate you making the time for us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks, Ashley. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Candle Communication Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can connect with us by visiting our website, candlepodcast.com, where you can find show notes for this episode, or you can connect through our social media pages on Facebook or LinkedIn. Also, please remember to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It really helps us to get the word out. Thanks. See you next time.